Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your co-host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This season of Club Book looks and sounds a little different than our previous seasons. Due to COVID-19, we are bringing seasons to you virtually instead of our traditional live events hosted in libraries around the Twin Cities Metro. Our format will be a little different too. Events this season will consist of facilitated author discussions by some really great guest hosts. And will also include a Q&A section with questions submitted by our virtual audience. With that, I'll turn it over to our host for this evening's event. Enjoy. Welcome to Club Book with Eduardo Porter. My name is Elena Bailey, and I am a Minnesota-based writer, former professor, and public policy director, and I am your moderator for tonight's event. Uh, my interdisciplinary research explores the interplay of race, power, policy, and culture. And last year, I authored How the Streets Were Made, Housing Segregation, and Black Life in America. Um, which I'm thrilled to share, uh, was recently named a finalist for the 2021 Minnesota Book Award. I'm also thrilled to be in conversation with Eduardo as our interests and areas of inquiry overlap greatly. Before I introduce our guests properly though, allow me a moment to tell you a bit about uh, the unique series that brings him to you tonight. Club Book is a program of MELSA, the Metropolitan Library Service Agency, made possible through Minnesota's Art, Culture, and Cultural Heritage Fund, and coordinated by Library Strategies, part of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. Scott County Library is a co-organizer of this evening's talk. If the pandemic had not forced a pivot to the virtual space, um, SCL would have been hosting Eduardo and all of you um, right now at their beautiful and homey public library in downtown Prior Lake. Thanks also to partnering bookseller Red Balloon Bookshop. So without further ado, I'm gonna to introduce tonight's uh, author. Eduardo Porter is an economics reporter for the New York Times. His distinguished career in journalism has taken him to Mexico City, Sao Paulo, Tokyo, and many points in between. He currently co-hosts The Pie, a podcast on pandemic economics sponsored by the University of Chicago which explores the financial and social ramifications of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Porter is also the author of The Price of Everything, Solving the Mystery of Why We Pay What We Do, a revealing look at the cost-benefit analysis that underpin each and every human behavior. His latest book is American Poison, How Racial Hostility Destroyed Our Promise. In a sterling review, Booklist says that with a scintillating rhythm and pointed language, Porter exposes all the ways in which racism has infected everything from unions to welfare to education and immigration policy. 
American Poison is a Work for Our Times. It was reissued recently in paperback form on February 9th. Um, after a short presentation and reading by our guest, uh, actually, I think we might skip that reading part, we'll have time for audience Q&A. So simply drop your questions in the comments thread here on Facebook, and our tech manager will route them to me. If you'd prefer to ask a query in a bit more anonymous way, um, you can also send a private message to the club book here on Facebook, or you can send an email to clubbookmn at gmail.com. So time to dive in. This is such a timely work, um, a timely book, and I can't say just how much I enjoyed reading it. I'm looking forward to discussing. Um, but to get us started, Eduardo, can you share maybe just a little bit about how your book speaks to our current moment and political climate? Hi, Elena. Uh, thank you for such a lovely introduction. Um, and hi, everybody. Thank you very much for, for taking the time to come and hear a little bit about, about American poison. Um, a, a lot has happened since, since American poison came out about a year ago. Um, but the, the, the central thought animating this book hasn't really changed. If, if anything, our, our dramatic last year uh, suggested the kind of the racial hostility that has deformed our social contract since the birth of the nation, which is what I discuss in this book, is also going to determine our future. So Donald Trump lost the election in November, but our politics remains largely shaped by the same forces that brought him to power. The grievance of white voters resisting tooth and nail the emergence of a non-white America. As the nation becomes browner with each passing year, white sense of dread over their demographic future will increase the importance of race as a political force, and that will deepen the nation's divide. So I didn't set out when I was thinking about this book, I didn't set out to write about race. I originally thought that I would write a book about why the richest and most innovative country in the history of the world, the United States, doesn't really behave like one. You know, 16 million Americans live below one half of the poverty line. That's 6 million more than half a century ago. Whether it's the incidence of diabetes and obesity, the death rate from parasites and other infections, years lost to premature death, the United States is considerably less healthy than its peers in the developed world. Our life expectancy is shorter, our infant and maternal mortality rates are higher. We like to blame globalization and technological change for these misfortunes. You know, you know the story that robots took our jobs. But that doesn't really fit because globalization and technology struck everybody, including the French and the Canadians and the Germans and the Japanese. But American society its hospitals and its schools, its roads and its middle-class homes buckled alone. Now, how come? The, because the United States just didn't show an interest in building the kind of safety net that other rich countries erected to protect those on the wrong side of the wrenching change that globalization brought about. So when the good jobs wither and the wages stagnated, the bedraggled, threadbare American safety net could not hold the line. 
America's dead babies and bloated prisons, it's idle men and it's impoverished single moms can all be traced to this exceptional fact. So then to what led me to write this book was that I understood that we failed to build these things because racism got in the way. White voters, those with the political power to determine our future, refused to build universal health insurance, robust unemployment insurance, or universal childcare because they didn't want to share this kind of public infrastructure with the black and the brown. They chose to leave those sinking to sink because many of those sinking were people of color. If public goods must be shared across lines of race and ethnicity, they would rather not have them. So I guess to pu push this forward, or forward, the question right now is can we achieve a different, maybe more generous social contract? It's, it's, I don't think it's impossible. I mean, the United States population itself is changing, blurring racial boundaries. You know, The black-white divide that has largely defined America's race relations is giving way to a kind of more diverse set of, of, of ethnic possibilities. And, and as America's kind of multiracial cauldron acquires more, you know, different people, mostly through the growth of Asian and Hispanic populations, it's not unreasonable to hope that the racial hostility standing in the way of solidarity might lose some of its immense power. You know, maybe new generations will enlarge our understanding of what it means to be a, a mainstream American, you know, close the chasm between the us and the other that has prevented the United States from becoming a nation offering equal opportunity to all. There are in fact moments in our history, you know, Brown versus Board of Education, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, the Fair Housing Act, where we have shown that we are capable of such change. The immediate prospects, however, at least, you know, from my vantage point, looking out my window, aren't great because it looks from my perspective that we are marching into the future more divided than we have been in a very, very long time. Race shapes our political divide. 57% of Republican voters are whites without a college degree. Only 17% are non-white, according to exit polls. Democrats have lost the white vote nationwide in presidential elections since the mid-1970s. What's more, race colors a chasm between our past and our future, between an ethnically and culturally diverse urban America, home to most of its population, its innovation, its economic might, and an older, overwhelmingly white rural and small town nation that despite its shrinking population and economic footprint, holds enormous political power. Race pretty much determines perceptions about the nature of the American challenge. You know, the typical Amer African-American household, even today, 50 years after civil rights, makes only about 60% of what the typical white household takes in. The share of blacks in poverty is twice the share of whites. 70% of whites think that discrimination is partly to blame. 
but only 36% of whites agree. Only half this year. Nine in 10 blacks say that the United States has not made enough progress towards racial equality. Hardly a crazy thought given the statistics I just, I just referred to. Two thirds of African-Americans are skeptical that the country ever will attain such equality. But white Americans on the other hand, think the United States has done more than enough to expiate the sin of slavery. Eight in 10 white Republicans say that people seeing discrimination where it does not exist is a bigger problem than people not acknowledging real discrimination. See, 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 white Americans, in fact, see themselves not as perpetrators of racial subjugation, but as victims of a misguided campaign to redress some overstated racial wrong. Four in 10 African-Americans say their blackness has stood in the way of their success. But if you ask whites that have a high school diploma, three quarters say their race has not provided any advantages. So given the, 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 this big gap in views, it's not surprising that whites and people of color would disagree on what the government should do to heal the nation's ills. Almost two thirds of white Americans would like the government in fact to be smaller, raising fewer tax revenues and providing fewer services. But by contrast, six out of 10 African-Americans and seven out of 10 Latinos would prefer the government to be bigger. In 2016, only 28% of white respondents told Gallup pollsters that the government should play a major role in improving the social and economic status of blacks and other minorities. So again, it's the same story. We don't build public goods because we do not want to share them across lines of race. So, pushing it forward, thinking about our future. Uh, the Republican Party has become a vehicle for the political expression of white anxiety over demographic change. And the Democratic Party on its side has all but given up its traditional alliance with working class white men. This kind of racial sorting has reshaped politics into an existential battle between two radically distinct forces that offers very little space for compromise. Donald Trump didn't build America's racial divide. But the flip side of this is that his departure from office will not diminish the power of racial animus in our politics. The capital question we face is whether our high-tech postmodern future might yield some store of solidarity to overcome a racial wall built, bolstered, and refurbished over 250 years. And my guess, looking out the window into the first few weeks of the Biden administration, you know, past an assault by mostly white marauders on the Capitol, past an impeachment process that demonstrated the fealty of the Republican Party to a proud racist leader, is that it won't. Indeed, my guess is that white voters trying to stop at all costs 
the rise of non-white voters to power will continue to determine the course of American politics for the next 20, 30 years. We might one day overcome our understanding of America as inextricably divided by race and ethnicity. We might come to redefine the notion of what a mainstream American is to include all of us. Between now and then though, it looks like American politics will be consumed by whites doing their utmost to prevent this transformation. And if you ask me, it's gonna be pretty hostile. So anyway, with that happy thought, um, I, I turn it over to you, Elena. Um, and, you know, hopefully we can get a good conversation going on. Thank you so much for that. And for those in attendance or, or watching this, I think your introduction helps frame, to me, what's so incredible about this book is that so many people have been trying to make sense of the last four years and figure out, was this a blip on the radar? Is this a moment of regression? And your book provides some of what you shared, all this history and statistics and, and personal stories of towns that really gives us a long view of how we got there and why we haven't moved on yet and you know what it would take to, to change things. So um, that was such a wonderful introduction. I hope for anyone who hasn't read the book yet, I feel like that will give them enough to like jump in and <laughs> want to get into it. Um, so I like to start, I want to dig into some of the themes and things you shared. Um, but before we dig into some of that, I always like to start with just, um, some questions or a conversation about your approach as an author, right? Um, this is something I'm always thinking about as a writer myself. You, I think one of the strengths of this book that people, you know, will enjoy, have enjoyed is it's such an engaging and accessible book, right? But as a researcher and, you know, scholar, I appreciate it is well-researched and you're citing, you know, history and political science and economists. Um, so can you share a little bit about kind of your approach to this and how you managed to, to pull that off? Um, and maybe kind of how your background has uh, shaped, you know, your approach to the book. Well, my, my, you know, my day job writing for, for the Times is a lot about, you know, looking at research and trying to find out what people that are much smarter than I am uh, have found out, have figured out our, our, about how the world works. So I, I write mostly about economics, so I tend to be more familiar with economics literature, but, I, but, but I'm interested in also what sociology and political science and you know, social psychology has to say about how the world works. It's kind of like what I do every day. So there's this aspect of relying on research that came very natural to me. Now, how this taught, how I decided to deploy it here is, is, is kind of like a weird fusion of that kind of like professional sort of bias that I have just reading the papers and, and, and being interested in figuring out what, what they mean, is that I, I, I felt a bit of a close relationship to this topic. And I, I moved to the, I've lived outside of the United States since I was very young and I only returned 20 years ago. And I remember remarking, having this feeling that, that this 
country was weird in that it was so rich, but at the same time, so poor. In, I really had a hard time getting my head around that. Uh, there was so much violence and dysfunction and, 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 and margin, marginalization in a country that, gosh, it's like a, amazingly prosperous. And that idea just really kind of never left me. And I lived in LA for a few years soon after I arrived in the US. And in LA, you could see LA is a very kind of like multicultural, multi-ethnic, multinational cult place that is also very balkanized. I mean, you have the Mexicans living over here and the, and the Koreans living over here and the Salvadorians living over here and the African-Americans living over there and the whites living over there, it's totally separated. And this, so this idea started growing on me since then about what is it about this kind of balkanization of our society that contributes to this, you know, kind of poverty in our publics, in our public institutions. And I've been chewing on that for a really, really long time. And, you know, and I guess the, the arc came, kind of came all the way down during the 2016 election, when I was kind of like stunned to see a guy became president based on a very overt, blatant, xenophobic, racist message that, I mean, this is the 21st century, right? This is, you know, post-globalization, we're, you know, it's a cosmopolitan world. And I kind of connected this thing, you know, I think this, this sense of us versus them, this tribal identity that is kind of like feels entrenched and aggrieved is really a driving force of the American experience. And so anyhow, I kind of like try to get the, the skills from my day job with a little bit of my own personal thoughts and experience and, you know, kind of like, put them together into, into a soup. And, and this is kind of what I got out of it. I love how, uh, you know, casual you are about pulling out this great interdisciplinary, you know, very accessible book. I'm telling you, there are uh, many, I think, academics that would kill to have that skill set that you have. So congratulations on pulling that off. I was, it is, yeah, for those who haven't read yet, it really, um, it's amazing how you managed to pull all that together. Um, so digging a little bit into some of the ideas, um, I, I think I'm gonna ask you this question. You mentioned in the book, and I found this intriguing and important to discuss, um, that that group of, of kind of white writers that you, uh, voters that you talk about um, don't need to, you said voters don't need to experience minorities to mistrust them, right? And I thought that that was a very important, important and kind of poignant, um, you know, statement, right? So I wonder if you can elaborate on how just even the perception of, you know, uh, groups of people of color can drive these political and economic decisions. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that minorities, people of color, immigrants, Muslims, the other, you know, is a concept. It doesn't have to be a reality to motivate political thought. And I think that the, the moment that I kind of like, kind of came face to face with this most blatantly is I, I went to Harlan, Kentucky, which is uh, uh, in Appalachia. It is an extremely poor county, 
um, um, heavily reliant on coal. Um, I went there because it is one of like 10 counties in the United States where the federal government accounts for more than half of the income of its resident on average. So you know, if you're in, you know, the average Harlan resident draws at least half of its revenue in from, you know, social security, food stamps, some sort of, you know, federal government program. And they hate the feds. They hate the idea of, of welfare. And I was, I was at a town hall where the then governor, a guy called, named Matt Bevin, who was a big Tea Party guy, was, you know, he was riling up the crowd and whatnot. And the moment that he mentioned Medicaid being abused by, you know, kind of like uh, lazy people, he got a standing ovation. And I was sitting there looking at there and thinking, probably more than half the people here rely on Medicaid. And, you know, digging into that, having conversations with some of the folks there, the notion that there's some other that is abusing the system, taking my taxes, somehow unfairly profiting, is very, very strong. And you don't even have to see the other. I mean, Harlan is, I don't, I'm gonna guess here, but I'm not gonna be off by a lot, 98.7% non-Hispanic white. So it's not like they see many people of color. But there is this kind of like inbred mistrust, and that's a mistrust that has been built into our, the political discourse for 50 years. I mean, it's been part of the arguments that have been made to undermine the social safety net since the Reagan years, or even before, since Richard Nixon. Um, and it, it, it is super, super powerful. In fact, I mean, there's some polling and I might, I might mischaracterize this a little bit, but there was polling after the 2016 election that found that um, places where there were lots of migrants actually responded less well to Donald Trump's anti-migrant, um, um, you know, and I'm thinking of just white voters, white voters in an immigrant heavy, places were much less likely to respond to the anti-immigrant rhetoric than places where there were none. Um, and, and, and so it's these, these things are, 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 are symbolic, really. Um, and I think that's how, that's how they have been nurtured in our political, in our political discourse. That leads me to another question, and I, you're kind of, you touched on it a little bit, but one of the things you really get at in the book, especially through all the kind of history um, and your discussion of the social safety net, is that um, this isn't solely kind of a product of uh, Republican thinking. I think there's a place where you say, it's a mistake to see the racialization of welfare as exclusively the product of Republican thinking. And you give some good examples in the book, but I wonder if you might just walk us through, yeah. you know, how is this kind of an American thing rather than one yeah. party? Yeah. I mean, just to, just, just to take one little step back, I think that today, 2021, there has been a kind of like sorting of our politics, which has led kind of like the racially hostile, the more tribal part of our, of our white population into the Republican Party. 
and the Democratic Party has become the party of the this new, you know, multiracial, multiethnic population. I do think that that is that's a process that has pretty much run its course. In fact, I think you know, um, I, 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 but in the history of the United States, this race and racial animus has been bipartisan. Um, I mean, the, I start the book, I mean, the story of, of, of the of racial hostility in the United States is older, but I roughly start the book with the New Deal in the 1930s. And in the 1930s, this, this New Deal, which kind of like, I start there because the New Deal is a moment that's kind of starts that, that the construction of the American social safety net. We didn't really have much of anything before then. Uh, and, and, and FDR kind of like massively expands it and that sets the United States on a course that might've turned us into a social democracy, not unlike some countries in Europe. But at every step of the way, you see Roosevelt kind of like limiting it, limiting it to whites. And one of the reasons is because he needed approval in the Senate. I don't think Roosevelt personally was racist, but he needed approval in the Senate. And the Senate, he, that meant that he needed the approval of Southern white Democrats because, you know, the Senate, the South, the, the Democrats control the South uh, politically. And so the, the, to get the, the approval of Southern white Democrats in the Senate, he basically needed to exclude Blacks from the programs. And that's one of the reasons that the Blacks are not part of the Fair Labor Standards Act because they are mostly in occupations like in agriculture and, 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 and homework and that were excluded. Uh, that's also why they were excluded from the first uh, shot at social security. Um, you know, that's why so many of the government employment programs were segregated by race. I mean, and this is, this is a Republican president negotiating with our, excuse me, a Democratic president negotiating with a Democratic Congress, the Democratic Senate. And then if you move that, and, and it's not just, yeah, the Democrats were racist back in the past, even in the relatively recent future, uh, relatively recent past, you know, the Clinton administration, and again, I would in, I, I would in no way accuse Bill Clinton of being racist, but he passed some of the most horrible criminal justice legislation that ended in the massive incarceration of African Americans. He also passed a, a welfare reform program that in, that I think was was racist in motivation, that basically eliminated the poor's uh, kind of like entitlement to assistance from the federal government and replace it with a program that was controlled by the states, which of course means that in Southern states, uh, the poor would get very little or nothing. So this kind of, uh, in, in, this kind of uh, uh, shrinking of the generosity of the state uh, and this kind of adoption of punitive policies that happened to be particularly damaging to African-American families and communities is something that has been done by Republicans and Democrats until actually quite recently. Thank you, that was helpful. I, I love, especially because you dug into some of that history, not just like you said, way back, you know, kind of easier to write off <laughs> some of that New Deal stuff, yeah. um, but, um, but, you know, 
the nineties were, uh, extremely significant time in even some of the language around super predators and the policies that, you know, resulted in mass incarceration. So um, I appreciated that you, you know, you didn't avoid that tough topic, which some folks kind of, you know, want to tiptoe around it. Um, so I think at this point, I have more questions, but we're already getting some audience questions in, so I won't be selfish. I will um, ask you a few of those, and then, you know, if things slow down, I might slip in a few more of my questions in there. Okay. Um, so the first one is actually something I wondered about as well is, you know, with everything going on with the pandemic over the past year, you know, how has either that shaped, you know, your understanding of the role of racism in politics, or, you know, someone asked, how, is it, how has that maybe exacerbated class and racial tensions? So really just, you know, how's the pandemic play into all of this really? Hmm. I, I guess one of the things that has, that I've remarked upon in this pandemic is I, I'm kind of surprised that people are surprised that this pandemic has had such a disproportionate impact on people of color. I mean, as we now all know, uh, the, 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 the infection rate and the death rate amongst people of color has been much, much higher than amongst white people. The economic impact from the, 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 the kind of like the, the incredible recession that we're going into has also particularly impacted people of color. And, but the thing is that this is all kind of like, yeah, duh, that's how our country works. Um, and so all this, suddenly all this attention to, oh my God, look at what's happening. I'm so like, where have you been living? Because that's, I mean, yeah, the people of color hold the jobs, these low end service jobs that are the ones that are going to expose you more to the disease, um, you know, and are also the ones that you're, that are going to lay you off more. Like if you worked at a, you were a bus, bus boy at a restaurant or, you know, the, the, they're the most vulnerable part of the economy. And you're also probably going to live in more difficult living conditions with, um, you know, uh, more people, you know, cr scrunched up with your family and you are less likely to have health insurance. And, you know, yeah, this that's that's, you know, when I talked about at the beginning of this conversation, I talked about, you know, our high infant mortality, our, our low life expectancy. Our, well, yeah, duh, it's something that's happening mostly to underprivileged Americans and underprivileged Americans are more likely to be people of color. And so this crisis, if anything, is just kind of like put the yellow marker on the, you know, we are an extremely unequal society and we are amazingly kind of like indifferent to this inequality and i and and uh, that what wraps it into my my thinking is yeah one of the reasons that we are so indifferent to it is because it's happening to others you know others in the sense that they're black or brown or you know muslim and so to me you know it's not like the, the, this pandemic created new inequalities, but it just really kind of like hammered on the inequalities that are that we have that are just kind of like so uh, um, blatant and, and, and intense. 
Now that helps. And I think again, for those watching something I appreciate about your book is you, for a lot of people who, you know, aren't familiar with some of the history, they're looking at our moment and wondering, well, if there was ever a time, you know, with all the unemployment and, you know, the pandemic and all of this, if there was ever a time that we were going to embrace, you know, uh, you know, universal health coverage or basic income or anything like that, this would be it. But I think your book gives us a framework of why that isn't what's happening, right? Um, and to see kind of how we got to where we are, which again, I really think this is timely for answering some of those questions of people who are trying to figure out, this did not shake out how I expected it to shake out, right? <laughs> yeah. oh, look, to be fair, I do think that, I mean, when Congress passed a 2.3 trillion assistance program last year, it just, that did bowl me over because it's like, we've never, ever done anything at that scale. I mean, remember I, in 2009, Obama's just been elected president. He's crafting this, you know, kind of like recovery act to build us out of the greatest recession since the Great Depression. And he can't get a package over 1 trillion pass in Congress. He made sure it was less than 1 trillion and still he did not get a single, not one Republican vote. Fast forward to last year and suddenly we had this bipartisan package that was more than two times as big. It's like, what? Um, and so, I, I, you know, it's hard for me to interpret that within the framework of my, of my thinking, you know, because then we pass a 900 billion one at the end of the year, but, but I kind of like think that that is like a, our, our politics went a little haywire, a little crazy because of the pandemic. And right now they're kind of like settling back into the norm because now you have President Biden is proposing another big package, 1.9 trillion. But, and, but now the arguments that are very often heard from the right, it's too much money. We are, you know, gonna indebt our kids if we have to spend so much money right now, they're all coming out of the woodwork. You know, so now it's now we're kind of getting back to the norm. You know, um, why are we spending so much to help poor people? That argument is is back with us. I, I mean, I won't get off, but I, I there's so much that I think you're saying that explains a lot of those debates around types of public good and relief right now. But um, but I won't be selfish. I will ask another audience question. Um, so someone else asked if we step back kind of process wise, um, one, if you could talk about the title, uh, they were intrigued by the title of the book um, and how you came to that title. Um, and then also, was it hard? You know, what was the process of uh, kind of pitching the book, getting it picked up? Was it difficult? Because I mean, it is a pretty poignant critique of our society. So yeah, those are the two questions. Okay, so let me start with a second first. So pitching it was difficult because I didn't really know what it was for a while. I was talking to my, the, the, my editor at Knopf really wanted me to write a book. And so I was going into these conversations with him about what book I wanted to write. And as I mentioned earlier, I had I was thinking about something very different at the beginning. It was more kind of like, you know, why? How can the US behave this way? And it took me some time to say, well, actually the better book is to look at the reason that the reason is race. 
And, you know, there's, there are other books about why the U.S. is this way. There's a very famous book called What's the Matter with Kansas by a writer called Thomas Frank. It was published, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago, where he argued that whites voted against their self-interest for Republicans that cut taxes and cut public programs because they were motivated by things like guns and uh, gender issues, gay marriage, stuff like that. And I remember that I, my, my thought was, no, no, that's, you know, yeah, I mean, I can see that some power, but you know, you're really missing the big, big cleavage in American society. The big cleavage in American society is not guns. It's not, you know, bathroom labels for gender. I, are you kidding me? It's race. It, 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 and, and, so it took me a while as I was thinking through this process to kind of like think, okay, that's what I have to put on the front. That has to be my first sentence. And so that took me a little while. Once I came up with that, my publisher was really happy to run it. Um, and the editing process was a dream. He was super helpful and it was, I had no problem with with this with this proposal with this thesis about the title the title i kind of i knew the title even before i knew the book I, you know because I, I i guess it's because of the nature of how i came to it which is my first thought was how did america become such a crappy country when it's so rich and well so it's basically what poisoned it what poisoned its society what stopped it what you know what got in the way well, and and so american poison was just like doom it, yeah it was there it it was the word um and i mean i had a little bit more of an issue it was a little bit more complicated to come up with a subtitle which is how racial hostility destroyed our promise at one point i was going to use how racism destroyed our promise but I was thinking that the thought that I'm having about racial barriers, about tribal barriers, I mean, racism is of course a very prominent part of this, but there's also thoughts about, you know, racial fear, fear of loss of status, vis-a-vis -a, -vis a growing other in our population. Um, it seemed to me that there were a lot of emotions in the kind of tribal boundaries that I think are the, the core of the problem that I thought that the word racism would be perhaps too reductive. And so even though racial hostility sounds like a little bit of a wishy-washy sort of word, that's where we ended up. Awesome. Key thing there is having a great editor, it sounds like. For those yeah. women not writing, yes, that's a huge difference. Um, okay, two more have come in that I want to make sure I, I get in here. The first is, and you talk about this somewhat in the book. Um, so, you know, maybe a, a snippet here of are there other kind of state powers or governments that you see as maybe particularly progressive um, or regressive? Um, or do you see any of them being kind of a model for, you know, uh, what the U.S. could could work towards? I, I guess the short answer is no. Um, and 
there, I think there are a bunch of rich countries that I think have built much more reasonable, effective, compassionate social safety nets that have established social contracts that are much better for their people than we have. But I think that one of the re so one of the you know people talk about Scandinavia you know wasn't Bernie's favorite country Denmark um, and, and a lot of these countries are much much more racially homogeneous than we are and so these guys you have a bunch of tall blonde blue eyed Swedes building universal health insurance for a bunch of tall blonde blue eyed Swedes and so this issue of these kind of us versus them sort of political rhetoric that has been so important in the building of the of our American society and our institutions hasn't really, or at least not until kind of recently, has not been present in these places. And in fact, as immigration to some of these countries from the Middle East and Northern Africa, um, has increased, you start seeing some of the rhetoric that was more common in the United States in the 80s taking hold in some of these supposedly, you know, social democratic, uh, uh, you know, paradises. And so if anything, I feel that uh, as diversity increases in these places, the challenge is for them to hold the line on the generous social safety net and not fall victim of this, I don't wanna pay for something that's gonna be for somebody else. That is such important, that's so critical in the development of the United States. It sounds like, you know, right now in our moment, more the concern is that they don't emulate us, you know? Exactly. Exactly. The fear is that they're coming our way. I'd love it if it were the other way around, but yeah. yeah. I appreciate that as someone who uh, my dad immigrated here and always talks about how I wanted to go to Norway, but like, you know, when you're getting a visa as a refugee, you end up where you end up. And he's like, you know, I ended up here, but sometimes I'm like, that, that wouldn't have, I don't think that would have been the answer either. <laughs> um, so um, the next question is, can you maybe help the audience think through um, or share a little bit on, on how much maybe we can expect the government to address systemic racism. And they brought up particularly kind of, you know, the history of, you know, reparations and reconstruction, um, you know, yeah, I'll leave it open to that. This is a really, really difficult question. Um, I'm glad you have to answer it and not me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I struggle with what the, with the prescriptions. You know, what is the best? What are the policies? Um, my kind of like 10,000 foot take is that the, the goal is really to build a common sense of identity, an American sense of identity, one in where the you know people in Appalachia and you know and African Americans in Georgia and Latinos in LA feel equally American and feel comfortable with that identity, um, and that we can therefore build the public structures of society, including all the supports that are needed from people that fall out of you know for whatever reason. It, 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 in, in, in comfort that we're all 
kind of Americans, kind of like the, this whole myth of the melting pot becoming real would be my sort of, and I know it sounds kumbaya and whatnot, but I do think that that is a necessary condition to build. And in the book, I'm actually a little, I push back a little bit a lot against the notion that, the, that, that our challenge is, should be approached from the concept of justice. The fact that uh, African-Americans have been injusticed for hundreds of years and deprived of their rights and kind of, and killed and, you know, and deprived of their homes and their wealth, that is all true. But I layer that onto the politics of our present and I wonder, okay, do we achieve this world that I think we need to achieve by solving this injustice, by reparations, for instance. And I, I have a hard time thinking that that takes us where I think we need to go. So, I mean, to give it you in a very, very, you know, cookie cutter version is go and ask the 75 million folks that voted for Donald Trump uh, um, last year and say, you know, part of what we're gonna do now is, is reparations. And just what does that do to our politics? Now I, now, I understand. I mean, in a way, it's kind of crazy that you think that, 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 that this is the test that I'm putting the policy through. Oh, yeah, we've got to ask the white guys, you know? And, and it is. It is crazy. I, it, um, it is crazy. But the America that I think that we need to build includes all those white guys. And you have to build it with all those white guys. And all the you know Latino guys and the African American guys and the Asian American guys, and so my thought about the argument from justice, true as it is, ineffable as it is, is from a kind of like a, 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 a from the from, if I'm thinking about where do we have to go, I don't you know I don't think that that is the main that is that productive a strategy. Now, then you'll ask me, okay, so what's the project, you know, what's the good strategy you, you know? Uh, and, 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 and there I, you know, then yeah, I kind of like, I, I claudicate. I say, well, who know? I don't know. But um, because in fact, the fact that 75 million people could vote for a platform that was so divisive and so xenophobic and so racist and kind of like saying, gosh, how do you fix that? And, and it leaves me sort of speechless in a way, you know? Um, and then I come up with, you know, I can tell, I mean, if I want to feel good, I feel, okay, we've done things. We've been, we've done things in our past. We've done school desegregation did happen to some extent, and it was very successful by some measures. Residential desegregation did happen to some extent. Uh, we did, you know, we problem is we stopped doing some of these things that were very successful, you know, and I, I thought the, the conversation between Kamala Harris and Joe Biden in the primaries, I don't know if you remember when she reminded him that he in fact voted against busing 
Um, I thought that was like, I mean, that was really going to stick with me because busing was an immensely successful policy. If you look at outcomes, educational outcomes, and there's work saying that these educational outcomes stayed later in life. And they, you know, we stopped trying. So if you ask me, what do we have to do? I, my argument would be, we have to double down on these kind of efforts that we have made to try to bring us closer together. So I think it's about residential segregation. I think we have to do policies to combat that, to bring residential integration, educational integration. And, and, and these are probably not even federal policies. It's more about state, municipal, local policy. It has to, but the, they have to serve in my mind, the idea of building a community a community of all of us. And I, I'm even a little bit embarrassed even as I say this because I tend to be kind of like a hard nosed econ dude. And so this stuff about, you know, but I do, I, I can't see a way without that. I can't see that without building this sense of community and we can, we can, we can do it. That helps and it kind of leads into someone else's question, but I just, you know, from what I hear from you and what I gather from the book, it seems like there's a difference between saying like, yes, of course, justice is important and, and you know, the argument makes sense, but we know change has to be structural, like you said, desegregation and things like that, but we haven't gotten there and won't get there until there's a collective investment. And that's where we have to deal with the nitty gritty of collective means, you know, the people who are feeling hostile towards immigrants, people who just got here. And somehow we have to figure out what that looks like to collectively, you know, have a shared investment in the public good, which is no easy feat. But someone asked this question related to that is, do you think kind of the shifting demographics will affect that? And you talked about this a little bit. Um, yeah. So maybe you want to speak on that. That's another really tough and super interesting one because so let's just look at the, what we know about the shifting demographics. By somewhere in the mid 2040s, the majority of the population will be non-white. And so um, this will, I think naturally, you know, I don't know when, but will tip the balance of political power. Um, how it will tip it? is it, it, that, that raises a bunch of questions. Is there such a thing as a community of color that will then be the main political power in this country that will determine priorities in a different way? I, it's not clear to me because a community of color is a bunch of different people with different cultural backgrounds and, you know, and different experiences of this country. So, you know, will African-Americans and Latino-Americans and Asian-Americans coalesce into kind of like something that's, that has some political coherence is not obvious. Um, there's a chapter in the book about uh, Southern California in where I kind of point out that in communities where there's been African-Americans and Latinos, there's, often, there's been a lot of tension between these communities too. Um, and again, it's the same kind of like tribal feeling. It's, you know, I want, you know, I want political power, resources and stuff for my people. And the way that you define the frontier between me and you is often, you know, race, language, religion, 
you know, these barriers. Um, and so, I mean, I've read sociologists saying, okay, one question is whether this country is going to divide into white versus non-white or into black versus non-black. Could Latinos, you know, then become whites? And this has happened in the past. I mean, if you look at the Northeast, you know, Italians, Central Europeans, Jews, you know, were kind of like blacks in the late 19th century, 20th century, they were considered inferior citizens. And uh, over, you know, like the early decades of the 20th century, uh, um, they were, they became kind of whitened. And one of the reasons they became whitened was the great migration of African-Americans out of the South and into the Northeast. And so that kind of like led the, oh, well, there, there, there's this, you know, even more other populations. So we'll invite these guys that are a little bit more like us, you know, and 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 so that whitened, you know, the former non, you know, the former others, the former inferior others. And could that happen again? It's 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 hard to tell. I mean, right now, if you look at the lived experience of this country of African-Americans and Latino communities, I would say there's a lot, a lot of, 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 of kind of like a, a, a lot of overlap, a lot of, you know, similarities at the possibility of building a kind of like a shared understanding of what needs to be done. But, you know, the Rio Grande Valley Latinos voted for Trump at a much higher rate than they had in 2016, just, last November, which was kind of like startling to everybody. Um, and so it really, really is a big mystery. And then, you know, you have also Asian Americans, which are, I mean, the two big growing populations are going to be Latinos and Asian Americans. And so how that's going to mix stuff up is super interesting, but very unclear. I think we might have time for just one last question. Um, someone else asked again about your journey as a writer, and I think you've shared about that, but maybe as we're closing, advice to anybody interested in writing or, or any other kind of closing thought you want to share, I should say. Gosh, right. You know, just, I mean, I've had a fairly, frankly, I've been really very lucky. Uh, I used to write for, I started as a writer in Spanish, writing for a Mexican newswire and then a magazine out of Brazil. Uh, and then I suddenly landed in the US to write for the Wall Street Journal. So like, which is like this huge, very big, you know, and they decided to pay me to write in English. So I feel like, gosh, I, I you know, I really got lucky here. Um, and then sort of like the Times said, oh, gave me a job. It, it, so, and once you work for the Times, you want to convince a publisher to, to publish your book, you're kind of like three steps ahead of everybody else, right? Because, you know, you, you have that, that stamp on your passport. Um, and, and, and so I, I think I'm kind of like, I've been more privileged in that way than, than a lot of other journalists and writers. Um, but you know, I mean, like, what do you just, if something is really burning, you write it, 
I, I, you know, I think that's gotta be it. Because here's the thing, being a writer is not gonna make you a lot of money. Just, you know, get that, understand that, you know? I mean, there are, I guess, the one percenters of the writer's club, but pretty much it's not gonna make any money. So if it burns you, write it. And if not, find a different kind of job because <laughs> you know that, that it'll be, because if writing, it's only about how, how much passion the writing uh, instills, you know, how, how passionate you feel about what you're writing. Otherwise, j just do something else. I appreciate that. I think that is a good, both encouraging and realistic note to end on, which seems like <laughs> a conversation for tonight. Um, so that's unfortunately all we have time for this evening, but thank you again, Eduardo, for um, you know fitting us into your busy spring schedule and being here tonight. Thank you, Elena, from the, you know, the vast expanse of my living room. It's been lovely to be here with you guys. Uh, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. That wraps up our Scott County Library event with Eduardo Porter. Make sure to catch our next Club Book podcast with Lauren Fox. Lauren Fox is an acknowledged master of the family novel, but her latest offers fans something of a departure. Send For Me is a time-jumping work of historical fiction in which a cache of letters sheds light on a family's struggles and fate during the rise of Nazi Germany. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Club Book Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle ClubBookMN. And if you enjoy these free Club Book events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.